Welcome back, everybody, to To Be Determined with Dan and Bill. Yes, and this time we're going to be talking about the dangers of having too much time on your hands, or in your brain, or outside of your brain, something like that. We are going back in time, so to speak, to the mid-80s, to an author that is not known as a, as a science fiction author by any means, but this is a theme at least for the last couple episodes here, because last, last time around we did Dean Koontz. And this time we have Stephen King. The story is called The Jaunt, and it is from his best-selling collection of short stories called The Skeleton Crew that was released, as I said, in 1985. Yeah, King is usually much more known as a horror fiction guy, right? I mean, I've, I've never been a huge Stephen King fan, but then I'm not a huge horror fiction fan. But he has done a couple of sci-fi things. We, and there's there was some movie where I know an airplane goes through this weird rift and they're kind of looped out of time and something is eating the world. I can't remember the name of that one, but that was kind of cool. I think that was called The Langoliers. Yeah, that was a mini series. It wasn't actually a movie, as it turns out. I know I saw it. I don't remember much of it, but yeah, he's pretty much a mainstream horror guy. So anyway, we're going to talk about something that's not mainstream horror, and uh, you want to give us a quick overview of the characters or get us started on the jaunt? Most of the characters are, are a family, the Oates family, and then the inventor of jaunt is, is the other primary main character, but I'll run through those. So Mark Oates is the dad. He's a mining engineer, and he's he's got an opportunity to go work on Mars for a couple of years. His family has decided to go with him. And the way that they're going to get there is by teleportation. And that family, his wife is Marillis and his son, Ricky, who is 12 and who's like an inquisitive little dude. And, and then he's got a daughter, Patricia, who is nine, who is really anxious about this whole thing. And she's a kid that shows a lot of empathy as we will see in this story um, with them, the primary people that they interact with or that are in the room, maybe there's there's a bunch of other passengers who are getting ready to jaunt and, and none of them are really mentioned by name, but then there's these jaunt attendants, so like flight attendants who are moving around, administering sleep gas and milk to people. They don't really talk so much, but they're a presence in the story. And then, as I said, the, the inventor, his name is Victor Caroon. He's the guy who created jaunt technology back in the 80s. And we go back and forth in the story at some point between the family waiting to teleport to Mars and Victor Caroon as he is inventing jaunt. And we'll get back to that in just a moment. But that's the, that's, that's the, the array of characters that we have to work with. So let's get one thing straight. Stephen King keeps calling it teleportation, and it's not. Teleportation is being able to move yourself around by using nothing but your mind. What this really is, is more along the lines of matter transmission, particle transmission, much like the transporters in Star Trek or the Stargates or something, you know, moving objects from point A to point B with some type of technological augmentation. And it kind of bugs me that they keep calling it teleportation when it's not. And actually, they make a reference in the story even to uh, another great science fiction story by Alfred Bester called The Star's My Destination, in which Alfred Bester calls what the character does jaunting when it's really teleportation. And that's how the jaunt comes to be the title of this story. But they keep messing up teleportation and mixing it up with matter transmission. And it bugs me. But that's just me. 
And it's interesting that it bugs you because one of the details that I did not cover in the opening is that the story was written much earlier than 1985. Stephen King had written it for Omni Magazine, and it was rejected. And it was rejected because the science was wonky, is, is quote-unquote. Which is just hilarious because... <laughs> uh, well, pretty much anything having to do with matter transmission or teleportation to science is going to be wonky. I mean, so that's if pretty you funny, read though. anything about people trying to analyze the physics of Star Trek or any of these other science fiction shows, you get into a, this discussion of matter transmission and teleportation. And I know we're fighting over a bunch of things that are just you know fantastical in nature, but uh, it is what it is. It's the nature of science fiction. I love it that the story was rejected by a magazine with a science take because the science was not good enough, however, or that it was a little too speculative. Yeah, and if you look at the other stuff that Omni published, it's like, really? You yeah, didn't I know. like this one? <laughs> okay. guess the, the managing editor was having a bad day, or maybe he just didn't like Stephen King. And it wasn't clear from the note. So this is a detail from an interview. Ben Bova, and I don't know if he was the editor of Omni. I suppose that's something I could have checked on, but I didn't. Um, but Ben Bova is the person who helped Stephen King revise, I guess, the story into its present state. So um, I don't know if it's less wonky than it was or if it is still wonky or, or what the case may be. But it isn't the original story, at least in, in, its, in its complete form that was submitted for publication. Maybe that's why it doesn't make any sense. It's possible. Well, despite the fact that there's some wonky science about it, I think it's still a story that's worth reading. And and let's let's uh, take a turn into the story itself then. And and so it opens, I mentioned the, the Oates family getting ready to transport themselves or get to be transported to Mars because he has taken a job with Texaco Water, We'll get around to why Texaco is now a water company later on in the story. Although it's totally irrelevant. Well, yes. So the family is sitting there. Mark, the dad, is the only one who has ever jaunted before, and everybody else is nervous about it. And apparently there's a reference that was made to if there was time while they were waiting, Mark, dad, was going to tell the story about how jaunt came to be, and he decides that this might be a way of distracting his wife and kids and getting them focused on something other than the impending jaunt. And so he begins to launch into it. Yes, and this brings our, well, it brings Victor Caroon into the story, as you said, who is the inventor of jaunt technology. He's this kind of, you know, eccentric, lone inventor working in his garage, putting together things out of tinfoil and transistors on government grants, like so many classic science fiction inventors. And he invents something that is essentially, well, it, it's, it's matter transmission. He accidentally sticks his fingers through this portal he's created, realizes they've disappeared, jerks them back out of the machine. He's like, oh, my fingers are still here. What just happened? And once he realizes what he has done, which is obviously invent matter transmission, he starts experimenting with all sorts of things. He sticks pencils through this little transport device and he sticks keys through it. Then actually where the story gets interesting is where he starts to experiment with live animals. Yeah, so there's a gas crisis on. He's running out of computer time, and he books it down to a pet, pet store. store in his Subaru Brat. And he's flying back in, and he's got a box full of mice. 
because as we know, all good inventors drive Subaru Brats because they're known for their reliability, I guess. <laughs> and everybody tests things on mice because they're mice. It's just what you do. And they're cheap. So it's funny, like it goes through this, the, the little details. He, he goes to put the first one up and he, he sets it down on the table. It jumps down and runs away. And so he's swearing. He grabs the second one. He's like, okay, it's not going to happen again. And and he he tosses this the second one through, I think, or or, or shoves it through the, the one portal and it pops out the other side. And it didn't go very well. Yeah, it's a little wonky. He looks at it and it's just kind of, its eyes are glazed over and he kind of walks up to it and touches it and it falls over dead, which is probably not the outcome you wanted. Right. And so he he runs through this with a few mice and, and, and they keep not living. They, some of them live longer than others, but none of them come through right. And they all, they're, they're, they're shaking or they are, they're just, they seem stunned or, or out of, just out of sorts and end up dying. And he, he keeps tossing them into this, this paper bag because he's going to take them to a veterinarian and have them autopsied afterward. And then at some point he decides, I wonder if it would be different with his goldfish. So he's got these two goldfish, Patrick and Percy, and he slides the bowl through the portals. One of them dies instantaneously. One of them is floating belly up at first, but isn't completely dead. And then after a few moments, begins to twitch and revives. And so I'm not sure what that proves exactly, how um, a mouse and, and goldfish are different in the in the eyes of this transport system that he's got. I, I think either in the context, not to jump too far ahead, but either the fish was asleep when he shoved the thing through, or maybe fish just aren't very conscious. That's what I wondered, except one of them did die. So then I... Well, maybe that was the one that was awake. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, that, that's... I wondered, too, that the only explanation could have been, at least logically to me, that one of the fish was asleep at the time that the bowl went through because they don't look all that different when they're sleeping. But he never comes back to say that. So I wondered if it was a it's detail. Ben Bova's fault. Kind of, yeah, there we go. He messed I'm sure it there up. was a long explanation that got cut out. But anyway, as you said, Victor's experimenting with animals. He shoves a few of them through. Everything that goes through, with the exception of one that he kind of just puts half through, he puts it back into the mouse through and leaves the head on his side, realizes that if you don't put the brain through, you know, the, the mouse is okay. And from there, he surmises that it has something to do with sensory input. Right. But then the government shows up and takes over the whole project. Right, and they, they are, of course, observing him because they're watching his computer time. And he's taking money from them to develop the technology. Oh, well, yes, of course. Yes, as soon as they can, they jump in and they expand on, on the testing, and they, they prove definitively pretty quickly that matter is not affected in any way, shape, or form. So that's when they first announce that they have this breakthrough, and it begins to have uh, a positive effect. They are able to cut down on their resource, well, on their fuel consumption specifically, which is a good thing because the previous winter, a bunch of people died because they ran out of heating fuel. So this is all, like all the government funding is about looking for solutions for the energy crisis. Stephen King writing this in the 70s or 80s, you know, in the 70s, we had the big energy crisis in the United States, well, globally, of course, but so anyway, you know, that kind of stuff, it, it creeps into the story. 
And so even though he references the fact that, you know, we're going to save all this on fuel and transportation costs because now we can, you know, use this particle matter transmitter to shove stuff around the planet, they do completely ignore the fact that oil is a raw material used to produce things like plastics, and there's lots of other uses for it. Right. But for some reason, you know, the, the invention of this particular technology crashes the price of oil. And this, again, is how Bill referenced earlier, Texaco becomes a water company. Uh, but even though I don't think Texaco is around as an oil company today, if I remember correctly. They could have been bought out by somebody. I'm not sure. Well, anyway, the next phase of research and development focuses on human beings, of course. And that's where things get a little sketchier in terms of the historical notes. Texaco is owned by Chevron. Thank you, Google. Ah, there we go. So when they when they go to test on humans... They have concocted the theory that you can't go through a wake. And so when they begin testing it again, they test it on... They are convicted criminals or mentally unstable. That's right, or both. And so they, they run through, and, and yes, all the people who go through who have been rendered unconscious, they come through just fine. And there's this one particularly heinous criminal that they decide, okay, we're going to give you a special pardon if you decide to, or if you agree to go through without sedation and you come through on the other side and everything is all still working, we'll pardon you and you can go back to your, your killing ways. Of course, they think it's a pretty good bet that he's not going to come out of this. And as it turns out, he doesn't. He gets to the other side and he is, well... He's not right. Yeah, it's, does his hair turn white? His hair turns white, and, and there's something about He doesn't necessarily look as if he has aged, and yet his eyes look like he has seen things, like he, the, the, he suddenly looks ancient. And he says out loud, it's eternity in there. And then he dies on the spot of a heart attack. So again, we get the idea that this jaunt technology has something to do with human consciousness that really doesn't doesn't blend well with this matter transmission technology. Uh, the matter can be transmitted by whatever means, whether it's broken down into particles and, and, and sent or, or however it's happening, but that the consciousness presents a different problem as far as that kind of stuff goes. And the consciousness does not have a physical entity, a physical presence the way that um, the way that a body or an object does, of course. And so something else is happening, and it isn't good. Now, of course, humans being creative, they find other uses for this jaunt technology, particularly the criminal element. They realize that, hey, if we can send people to other places, maybe we can send them nowhere. And one enterprising individual realizes that if you stick someone into the jaunt machine but don't program a destination, they just kind of disappear and he makes his wife indeed disappear and uses the novel defense that since she's not there, they can't prove she's dead, and therefore they can't prove that the guy's a murderer. So human creativity at its best. Not only that, but it makes a really convenient garbage disposal. You can stick dead <laughs> bodies in there. You can stick pretty much anything in there, and it'll just go away, which is interesting because there was another early science fiction Story, I don't recall it offhand, but uh, a guy does show up with something similar to a matter transporter, and the 1950s housewife basically uses it as a garbage disposal and says, oh, this is so convenient. Yeah, that's what we've been using space for, and like caves under mountains, so 
you know, as long as we can't see yeah, it. Yeah, but this matter. just it just goes away. You have no <laughs> idea where it goes. It just disappears, much like our viewers and listeners. <laughs> I I found it amusing that um, Mark Oates knows that Karun, the inventor, had published an article in Popular Mechanics for seven hundred and fifty dollars as a way of continuing to fund the project while he was working on it. And so uh, that's where a lot of the historical details come from. And then there's a museum where they keep like some of the the apparatus and the details from things. But uh, just an amusing side note. Well, one of the things that, that Oates notes as he is talking is that his son seems a little too curious about things or seems a little too excited about all of this. And he wonders if that's a bad sign in some way, shape or form. And that proves to be a bit of foreshadowing for later on. Uh, but there's not much he can do about it. So he, he continues to tell the story. And so, yes, jaunt has become a thing. And now the flight attendants or the jaunt attendants have made their way to the Oates family and they are administering the gas. And dad takes his hit from it and, and goes to sleep. And then we move to the final scene. And then they all wake up on Mars. That's right. And what happens? And live happily ever after. Well, no, actually, they don't. And they wake up, and uh, there's all this commotion going on. And it all revolves around Mark's son. Ricky. Yes. Ricky is now, well, Ricky has changed a little bit. And the way Stephen King puts it is, the thing that had been his son bounced and writhed on its jaunt couch. A 12-year-old boy with a snow-white fall of hair and eyes, which were incredibly ancient. Cornea has gone as sickly yellow. Here was a creature older than time, masquerading as a boy, and yet it bounced and writhed with a kind of horrid, obscene glee. And at its choked, lunatic cackles, the jaunt attendants drew back in terror. Some of them fled, although they had been trained to cope with such an unthinkable eventuality. And so, yeah, the the son, Ricky, turns out he held his breath when when they put the mask over his face because he wanted to know what it was like to go through and to see what happens inside of the jaunt. And he blurts that out as, as he's talking, and then he says, Longer than you think, Dad, it cackled. Longer than you think. Held my breath when they gave me the gas. Wanted to see. I saw. I saw. Longer than you think. So he's just gone completely nuts. And he then claws out his eyes and is taken away by the jaunt attendants in a flare of, well bringing horror into the story, as we would expect from Stephen King, and that's how it ends. A cheery, cheery tale. Indeed it is. It's just all, you know, sunshine, roses, and unicorns up there on Mars. As we said before, he has a, he has a way of bringing science fiction elements into his horror stories, and here he's brought horror elements into a science fiction story. But some of the stuff that he makes reference to are definitely big ideas in our culture, and, and especially when it comes to invention. So, I mean, for example, the story that we tell of Karun, you know, his anxiety and his excitement, and then, um, you know, the him being kind of like shoved to the side and other people coming in, like there's this whole mix of jubilation and exhilaration over scientific discovery. But then there's also that, that uncertainty and that fear that comes from doing something that could have, well, these kinds of consequences um, but then it's also interesting that it captures, especially by the time we get to the Oates family sitting in this um, transport center, that most of the people there have, have jaunted before. And so even though there's this life-threatening element to it, they're just... They're very blasé. It's yeah, just, you know, just part of normal it. life, you know? 
Right. Well, it's just like you see people in the airport crowding onto an airplane and flying through the sky at 30,000 feet and thinking nothing of it like it's a bus. Yeah. So it's just that where something goes from novel to mundane and, you know, everyday technology. And and we have that kind of a relationship with science and, and with technology that, you know, there, there's stuff that we reach for and there's stuff that we're excited about and, and you know, there's the, the thrill of discovery and then we just love to turn it into mundane stuff as quickly as possible. Remember back when cell phones were cool? Yeah. <laughs> Remember back when pagers were and now cool? they're just a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> Every technology that becomes mundane. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if it's interesting, but Stephen King does what a lot of authors do in these stories, which introduces a whole lot of background and a whole lot of story elements that really don't matter. He goes into this whole background of, you know, the oil crisis and energy and the reason why jaunt technology is invented and the background of Victor Caroon. And a lot of it really is irrelevant to the point of the story, which is the fact that jaunt technology makes you crazy. But that seems to be kind of a staple of authors. Yeah, you know, in the context of this story, Karun has stakes. You know, he's he's government subsidized, although not by doesn't get a lot of money. I mean, he's he's built this thing from stuff that you could get from science stores and, and mechanic stores for under five hundred dollars total. You know, so it's it's not a huge investment that the government has made in all of this technology. But you know, so having an energy crisis gives us, you know, he, he's working, he's he's the lone inventor working in his garage, you know, to to solve the energy crisis. I mean, there, there's something that's heroic, I suppose, at, at some level about that kind of thing. Yeah, that's that whole independent mad scientist thing, which you know yeah. was a staple in the '40s and '50s and '60s. But you know, nowadays it's kind of it's sort of quaint to think about that. Right now, we know. Research and invention is done by teams of people across multiple universities and multiple think tanks. So the single lone wolf inventor, although it's almost canon at this point in some of these stories, it, it's really not true. No, but it makes for a good story element when you want to sell something to Hollywood. I mean, back to the future, Doc oh, Brown. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that is that is the epitome or the, you know, the stereotype personified and perfected. Michael J. Fox didn't go insane by using his time travel DeLorean, so I guess they didn't have that problem with that particular technology. That's right. But, I mean, it, it is kind of odd when you think about it that what what Stephen King is saying is that somehow human consciousness is not tied to the physical state of your body, right? Because the body is basically completely, you know, disassembled, transmitted, whatever, but somehow your consciousness is outside of that, which seems a little odd because, number one, when you're anesthetized, that shouldn't put your, you know, non-physical consciousness to sleep, I guess, because sleep is a physical form. So you know, it gets a little weird when you start thinking about it, like, how is there this consciousness and it doesn't have any senses in theory because the physical body doesn't exist. What can it do? But although apparently it can see. So you start thinking about things like sensory deprivation tanks and you know people who lose their senses and the kind of things they experience and whether or not you know, not having any senses would drive you crazy, the whole brain in a jar kind of a thing. Well, and some of the things that they've experimented with over the years to use is anesthesia they stopped using them after a while because they realized that the people, although they were non-responsive, they were still actually conscious. 
Yeah, that's a gruesome thought. Yeah, I mean, and and so there there is some basis for something like that to happen, but it's a bit of a leap to have that kind of a story element playing out here. Uh, but it also like, and, and this is very much consistent with the kind of stuff that he writes. You know, everything he does is very cerebral. He's 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 much more of a of a thinking kind of writer than he is. Uh, like say you know compare him to somebody like oh who's the dude who wrote Hellraiser? Not a Pulp Fiction action packed gore splattering. Type yeah. Of thing. Oh, Clive Barker. There you go. So yeah, I mean Clive Barker who goes for the really visceral kind of wet flesh cinema kind of stuff. That's not Stephen King's style. You know, he's he's much more of a cerebral writer as far as that goes. And so it would make sense that he would focus in on the consciousness being damaged by something like this rather than the physical body being damaged by this. Uh, because, it, you know, just in keeping with what he would find more horrific. But at the same time, like I said, you know, as, as a story element, it, it creates some interest, interesting you know, notions about what it means to be human and what it means to, you know, go through that kind of a process. Yeah, it kind of harkens back to the old Dr. McCoy. I don't trust that transporter scrambling my atoms and sending me across the universe. Right. You know, and really the the same issues that are brought up with this jaunt device, right? There's a million science fiction stories and films and books that use something like matter transmission, you know, Star Trek's transporter we referenced. You know, we've got, you know, which is in Galaxy Quest. It's in Stargate with the portals. It's in, you know, Dan Simmons's book, Hyperion, with his Farcasters. There's magic portals in fantasy literature, like the Wheel of Time, I think. The, that series has some kind of weird magic portal. All sorts of things where people go in and they come out somewhere else and no one really thinks about what happens in between. Interesting that you mentioned Wheel of Time because there's one where Robert Jordan decided to to do like this interdimensional travel thing where the in the in the books and then in the series we actually go through the other dimension that they travel while they're while they're make, taking a shortcut on earth or while on whatever planet it is that they're supposed to be on but that is not typically something that we get to see i suppose if you talk about something like contact you know we watch Jodie Foster go through the wormhole that is going to take her from our part of the universe to this other part of whatever universe she is in, uh, where she meets the aliens, and she travels through the wormhole to get there. But we don't usually get to see that mechanism. I mean, that's exactly you know, what you're talking about here. It it is. I mean, early on, it could be just hand wavium, and and you know, even now, yeah, it's, it's just sort of a foregone conclusion that yeah, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's definitely hand wavium. I mean, you also see the same issue with things like faster than light travel, which of course is yeah. never explained because it's not explainable. But you always, in movies at least, you see, oh, they, you know, people's faces get all stretched out or they talk really slow or something, some weird cinematic effect is used to show that they're traveling faster than light. And the same stuff gets used for these teleportation devices, right? Stargate's got the weird starry tunnel thing that they go through that they show in some of the films and but you know of course what we're talking about here is what is the effect mentally on people who are going through this and of course most of the time nothing at all they might wake up a little dazed or they say oh i had a tingly feeling as i went faster than light for seven hundred thousand light years or something but I will say that this story is interesting in that it does actually address the mental state of someone going through this type of physical device, which 
as we just mentioned, normally is just not even thought about. It's hand wavium and it just works. Yeah, and when you go back to classic sci-fi, the only other thing that really stands out in my mind as an early example of it is actually from film, the original Fly, where it's a teleportation device and a fly Chef gets Goldblum. into the mechanism. Well, yeah, but even going back to the original Vincent Price version of it. But yeah, I mean, Goldblum, they, they definitely re- refine it uh, for that 1980-something film. I just watched it not too long ago. Um, but yeah, but the, there, you know, then the the DNA is is recombined by the computer because there's a human and a fly, and it turns it into one creature in the end. Uh, but that that's the only other like really classic kind of of teleportation mishap that I can think of that that you know Stephen King would be maybe you know, riffing on as he's writing. Yeah, teleportation at least. The concept of it, of or, or matter transmission, whatever we're calling it in this episode, it, it even dates back to the 19th century. Like some of the early references, there was an 1897 novel called To Venus in Five Seconds by Fred T. Jane, and he had some weird magical pagoda-type structure that you got in and and somehow get to Venus. So, So the idea has been around for quite a while, and there's been plenty of time for authors to play with it. We've already crossed over into conversations about things like time travel and faster than light travel. Transport, other than what feels, you know, ordinary and mundane, like walking and driving and flying to us. I mean, these are these are things that people imagine and reimagine and, and try to think, hmm, what would it look like in a different context? And so it makes sense that there's all of these different explorations of, of what that might mean. Um, and, and of course, if it's going to show up as a foregone conclusion or something that's, hey, it's exciting that we we learned how to do this. Of course, sooner or later, somebody's going to come along and say, now, what if it didn't go right? Always the $10,000 or $64,000 question. What happens when things go wrong? We like thinking about that kind of stuff. Well, Dan, what are some of the things in the story that are out of place or that you noted in the story that are out of place? Well, there's not a whole lot, aside from the fact that the whole thing takes place in a time period that we're all familiar with and none of it ever happened. You know, the late 80s and, you know, 1991, I think, was when the technology was invented. So obviously, you know, we throw all that out because it's just the way it is. And it is, the actual story is set several hundred years in the future. So there's not a whole lot different about it. And in fact, it is, you know, kind of like you said, the whole idea of, of traveling being mundane. They're packed into essentially an airport lounge. Pretty much seems like we haven't changed much as a species with regards to travel. I think it actually is the original airport lounge that they have just turned into a jaunt lounge. So I think exactly. it makes reference to that because the downstairs is really dingy and run down. And then the new stuff upstairs is, is nicer. Yeah, so the fact that we have colonies on Venus and Mars, right. well, you know, that that's okay. Interestingly enough, he talks about scientific experimentation on animals and on humans, which don't we, I think we kind of have some rules against that nowadays. Yeah. But, uh, maybe that doesn't go back to 1985. I thought it was longer than that. It seems like it would have at least been part of the cultural context and, and the conversation to be questioning those kind of things back then. Of course, now, yeah, we, we don't. We don't see that kind of stuff happening unless it's for medical stuff specifically. Yeah, but even then, it's like really incredibly locked down. And oh, you have yeah, to get yeah. all sorts of permissions for human trials and whatnot. So you can't just walk out and experiment on the human population or you know pick up a bunch of prisoners and shove it through a new 
fancy teleportation device to see what happens. We tend to look down on things like using people as experimentation fodder, you know, so there, there are lots of, unfortunately, lots of examples of that kind of stuff through human history, including in the United States, but it's generally frowned on and generally we hope not happening anymore. So one of the things that is still happening is our wonderful hmm, whoa, and what the fuck scale. So I'll throw it over to you, Bill, for the first crack at this one. What do you think? I know we're supposed to look at this as a hmm, because about the human consciousness, and we are supposed to be blown away by, by some of the things here. So it's supposed to have some whoa element to it. Oddly enough, it's a story that kind of resonates a little bit as a hmm, a little bit as a whoa, and a little bit at the end, I suppose, as a what the fuck, but... It doesn't really tip the scales on any of them for me the way that, that some of our earlier stuff has done. Not to say that it's a bad story, but it almost seems kind of muddied or or convoluted. And so it's hard for me to assign values like these to it. Yeah, I, I have to agree. For me, reading the story, it is kind of a little bit of hmm and a little bit of woe. But the story just, there, there's enough elements that don't hang together as a cohesive whole for me to say it's a great story, right? It's a good story. And to be fair, we're comparing it against some of the great science fiction people of the past, Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov, among others. So when you look at this story as a science fiction story, it's it's just not as good as I, I guess what a true sci-fi author would do with this concept. It's Stephen King's jaunt into sci-fi. Oh, that's terrible, Bill. But you are correct. So next time we're going to be going on, well, not a jaunt, but a another trip of sorts in particular the first story we're going to cover is going to be about a trip to the beach with a side order of death and if that doesn't make you interested i don't know what will and bill so who's the first author we're going to cover on the next episode that would be alice glazer and the story is called the tunnel ahead and the second story we're going to cover is by an author that i'm sure you have heard of kurt vonnegut with to be or not to be it's a couple of good ones. Make sure you come on back. <laughs>